want to speak as clinicians, as doctors, as your doctors, and really bring the patient to the bedside and talk about this as a doctor would, not necessarily a public health official. And basically say, you know, we know sickness, this is sickness. And again, bring the patient to the bedside and to say, this is what it's like to have to intubate an 11 year old in the South Bronx who's blowing through her inhaler because she's got asthma and the heat and the air quality have never been this bad before. So we really wanted to put a visceral sense of how patients will be suffering from climate related diseases and the exacerbations and conditions that are well beyond historical experience from any given community. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS stores at the top of the hour, and also on 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Jay Lemery. He is a Section Chief Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado. He is a consultant for the Climate and Health Program at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Also, he has co-edited the Global Climate Change and Human Health from Science to Practice book. And he also has co-authored Enviromedics, The Impact of Climate Change on Human Health, plus a whole lot more that you can see in the link or see in the description of today's episode. So like that last book title says, today's episode is going to be about how climate change is affecting our health, every single one of us. And as you can expect, there's a lot of dangerous stuff to it. So without further ado, I'll get into the episode. And also don't forget to give a five-star rating, like, review the show, go podcastaway.com, all that stuff. Every little bit helps, yada, yada. Yeah, to get right into it, climate change is this nations keep saying is our number one priority to battle, but... We always hear little bits here and there, but can we get a brief rundown of just what climate change is, like what's going on right now? Yeah. So really what we have is we have some core drivers, right? We've got increased energy in the atmosphere from uh, basically um, greenhouse gases, right? So we're holding more energy in our atmosphere and that's doing a few things. It's energizing our weather. It's um, melting our ice caps. So then we have sea level rise. And from there, we have, we see all these um, crazy perturbations in, um, in our environment, right? So we have extreme uh, heat events. We have um, vector-borne disease. So mosquitoes and ticks are now able to thrive in places where the winters used to keep them at bay, but now they're uh, going in places of temperate places or places of higher altitude. Yeah. And one thing is, yeah, in New England, uh, we have where I lived, we had this local pond that was flooded with mosquitoes. That was bad enough. But then you hear all this news about down south around the equator of mosquitoes are the number one killer of any animal by far. So now basically with climate change, 
these mosquitoes are like coming more north and basically killing more people? Well, you know, these are these are disease right. They're they're endemic diseases, right? And what we're now seeing is that these diseases are being exposed to more people for longer periods of time. Um, and these populations are historically naive to things like malaria and yellow fever, right? The places that um, um, have not been endemic. And so we're, we're, but what we're basically, what's basically happening is our temperate areas, which is, you know, kept vector-borne disease at bay because of the winters, right? We're now having softer winters or no winters at all. And so these tropical and subtropical diseases are expanding to more and more people. And that means that means more disease. So it really, it's a health impact, right? And building off that, I'm pretty sure I heard ticks don't actually die in the winter. Just when it gets too cold, they don't come out. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's what I heard. And now that, I mean, even this winter alone, we've only had like a week where it's really below freezing, it feels like. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, imagine, you know, you, you know, New England is now having weather that has historically been associated with, you know, Georgia or Alabama, right? I mean, it's, there's, and those winter shocks are uh, shorter and less severe. So you're, you're basically creating an environment where these ticks um, and mosquitoes can thrive in a way that they have not been able to before. And they bring the diseases with them. There's a list I can keep going. You know, we've got extreme weather events, hyper energized tropical cyclones, you know, so we're seeing more intense hurricanes in the Atlantic basin. We're seeing bigger downpours, right? And so what that does, those more intense downpours, because again, it's, we have energized weather causes uh, greater flooding events and that disrupts ecosystems because, you know, what that does is uh, it, it, it causes water insecurity when floods happen, you know, the, the, you know, one of the great bedrock principles of public health is, you know, we grow our food in one area, we live in another area, and we go to the bathroom in a separate area, and we keep those things separate. You know, intense downpours causes flooding, mixes it all together, and, uh, um, you know, can cause wa- waterborne uh, outbreaks, you know, which means diarrhea. And this is not theoretical, right? We've known that diarrhea outbreaks following floods and intense downpours, that's been reported in the literature for 100, 150 years. And in places with tenuous public health infrastructure, very poor sewer systems, you know, um, it, it, it even more so. And to this day, diarrhea is the leading cause of death worldwide in children under five. So this is a big global problem, right? So as we are seeing more and more of this, again, we're we're being it's considered to be a force multiplier, where we're seeing more um, stress and water insecurity. And the result is um, an effect on human health. Yeah, number one is not to be taken lightly. And also, I think about how America, we have a lot of farming land, and I think they're trying to improve on it, but a lot of that farming land has pesticides and chemicals on it. So is stuff like that causing the flood water to get mixed in with those chemicals and then run off into our drinking water too? Well, well sure. It, it, what it does is that it causes water insecurity because it's contaminating drinking water that had been, you know, sequestered from um, contaminants, both uh, man-made, you know, pesticides and so forth, as well as um, enteric disease, you know, so diarrheal disease and diarrheal outbreaks. What it also can do is, interestingly, um, one of the phenomena that we're seeing 
is that when these intense outbreaks, uh, excuse me, when these intense rainfalls happen, they flood bodies of water with nutrients, right? Agricultural okay. nutrients. And what that can do is cause algae living in those bodies of water to explode um, and logarithmically grow, right? They have all of a sudden, they have all the food they've ever been looking for. That causes a logarithmic growth and leads to harmful algal blooms, which those algae normally uh, live in microscopic doses in our bodies of water. We don't ever notice them. They're not a threat. But when they grow on a logarithmic scale and overwhelm an ecosystem, they have byproducts and toxins that can cause um, respiratory, liver, and neurologic illness to humans, as well as just completely disrupt the normal uh, ecosystem of a, of, a, of a water area, including you know, fisheries and um, other aquatic life. Is this a common problem right now or a growing problem? Like about what population do you think this is affecting already? It, well, it's well documented, and I will say that this is not. This is, you know, it affects scores of individuals a, a year. So we're not seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people suffering from a harmful algal bloom. But again, it's just more evidence that our ecosystems are being pushed to the brink, and it can really happen anywhere. We've seen it in the Pacific Northwest. We've seen it in Lake Erie, and numerous lakes around the country. So it's. When we keep track of these things, our, our public health officials tell us, you know, we're seeing more of these and they're often a direct result of extreme downpours, which we're seeing more of as well. And this is uh, directly attributed to climate change, you know, more uh, energized weather, holding more moisture, holding more energy, and that results in these extreme downpours. Okay. And looking at your bio, you're you practice climate medicine. I saw that term come up. So you're a doctor who likes to sort of see the way like this is just affecting people day in, day out. Is that like your job? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. So we came up with the term climate medicine is really a descriptive. I'm an emergency physician. I take care of people in the emergency department, but we run a climate and health program at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. And one of the things that we're trying to promote is that Look, no, no physicians are trained to deal with this. They're not trained to understand how ecosystems and, and the very complicated climate science are really perturbing um, human health and threatening human health in numerous different ways, right? So what we're trying to do is now educate um, physicians and clinicians, you know, so nursing and, and PA and, and nurse practitioner colleagues to say, hey, look, we have got to scale ourselves up to be to be ready to understand the threats to our patients and to understand the threats to our healthcare systems to make sure that they can operate when a wildfire strikes or a extreme weather event like a extreme downpour and flooding or a hurricane you know our health systems themselves are under threat and we've seen examples where hospitals have had to be evacuated because of extreme climate events right so what we're trying to do is scale up a workforce to address the threats, which we know are coming down the pike and the data tells us we'll be seeing more and more of these, but we have not been trained to deal with them. So we kind of came up with this idea of this concept of climate medicine as a way to attract attention around this. And for us in turn, to be able to create credible, knowledgeable, effective leaders who can you know, explain to hospital CEOs and policymakers and, you know, deans of medical schools, that this is a really important thing 
And, you know, if we're going to continue to take care of patients, um, well, we have got to be able to understand what's happening in our world and be able to prepare for these events. And that's similar to you. I also saw you co-authored the book in which has gotten good refuse. Is it the same idea where this book is about that message getting across like what we can do to change things and how impactful this is? Yeah, Environmedics is really, I wrote it with my mentor, um, you know, the late Dr. Auerbach at Stanford. And we really, it came out of a, actually an earlier book that I had ed, co-edited, uh, a textbook on climate and health. And we would talk to students and, you know, students would talk about the textbook, you know, as how they began to understand. It. And that's right and appropriate. You know, textbooks are great for that. But we also realized that we were losing the messaging around this deep and heavy science. And so environmatics was an effort to say, look, we want to speak as clinicians, as doctors, as your doctors, and really bring the patient to the bedside and talk about this as a doctor would, not necessarily a public health official. And basically say, you know, we know sickness, this is sickness. And again, bring the patient to the bedside and to say, this is what it's like to have to intubate an 11 year old in the South Bronx who's blowing through her inhaler because she's got asthma and the heat and the air quality have never been this bad before. So we really wanted to put a visceral sense of how patients will be suffering from climate related diseases and the exacerbations and conditions that are well beyond historical experience from any given community. And so that was really environmatics again, is to sort of speak from the doctor's perspective. Yeah, the asthma thing actually brings up a good point where I feel like I hear a lot of older people say, oh, everybody's got asthma today. Everyone's got like lung issues and I don't know what their agenda is with that. But that makes me think, well, CO2 has been rising constantly and the air quality is getting worse. So is that causing this growing like asthma and like lung related issues a lot of people have? It's a good question. What we know that particulate matter and sulfur dioxide and ozone are all pulmonary irritants. And we know that heat is a real risk factor for air quality. You know, when heat goes up, it causes lots of chemical reactions and makes our particularly urban air much worse. We've had some successes, right? The Clean Air Act in the 70s was, was a landmark um, legislation that cleaned up the quality of air in the United States. When you say the heat, do you mean like in the urban areas, it's causing chemicals to come out like the concrete or the buildings themselves or what's going on there? Well, it, w- what it does is that it, it causes, um, it often exacerbates existing pollutants. So we know that ozone is in many ways is heat um, related where on a very hot day, the air quality, right? The air quality index, which is uh, something put out by many public health agencies, is higher, meaning the air quality is deemed worse. And for those that are predisposed for asthma or any reactive airway disease or on oxygen because of their pre-existing lung conditions, will have a harder time breathing and will often trigger asthmatic or asthmatic type reactions. Okay. You mentioned something like we implemented a policy before that was doing well. Well, it's a clean air act. And that was, I think, in the early seventies. And, um, it was a, an example of where we passed legislation to uh, address um, emissions, I, I think, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think that's where catalytic converters on cars came out of that. Cars had to start having catalytic converters to make less toxic emissions out of their tailpipe. 
So that's just an example of, you know, an early success. And I think a lot of us that are now thinking about what would does smart legislation look like? Again, it's sort of thinking about what are the end effects on climate and health? And we know that air quality is a big one. Even um, pre-COVID, a lot of people in China were wearing masks because some of their cities get really pollution filled. I even heard they would make it rain on purpose to get rid of the smog at times. Like just seeing that and we don't use masks for that reason yet, but have we learned anything from what's going on over there? Well, sure. I mean, right. And I think what what the example there is, is that um, there's much less regulation for emissions in places like that. And the air quality is some of the worst in the world. You know, it allows us to see what happens when air quality gets gets very bad. And I, so I think there's no mystery at this point. The, the, the public health data is very good at air quality and poor health outcomes. And so when we see climate exacerbations of our air quality, it's easy for healthcare providers to say, hey, look, this is a threat and it's a growing threat. And it's just one of the things that we want to be able to address in uh, coming up with smart policy to protect the health of our, you know, our communities and our families. And I think that's, that's really what we're advocating for is to say, one, we have to recognize this as a health threat. And two, it's time to enact smart policy. We, we've done this, right? We've seen COVID was a wonderful proof of concept, right, for this type of thing. We've spent uh, a ton of money in protecting our um, our economy and, uh, you know, um, in terms of wages, right, we've seen a huge expenditure from a gridlocked, historically gridlocked legislature. Okay. We've also, you know, seen an incredible advance in, in vaccines. For instance, I'm a healthcare provider. We had COVID shutdown in March and I had a vaccine in my arm in December, right? That's totally unprecedented. And so what that is, is Bill, is that's a proof of concept is to say, look, if we properly assess a threat, we can have large-scale policy prescriptions to protect us. And I think, you know, historically, our uh, policymakers haven't recognized that and haven't acted on it. And I think now we're starting to see some change in that regard. So in terms of assessing this threat, like I understand that, um, like you mentioned, it's the number one killer for um, kids that have contaminated water and all that. But how would you assess, like, how big is this threat? Like, you say it's bad for the lungs, and it is, but what percent of, of people are getting infected through the lungs, or what cases have we seen rising, or what's the growing issues that we keep seeing come up in the healthcare as a result of this? Right. So, yeah, just to be clear, there was, you know, diarrhea that, is, this, yes. is the number one cause of death in, in children under five, right? We know um, water outbreaks from, from extreme downpours makes diarrheal disease worse. And so, you know, when we kind of go through the list, we think of extreme heat events where we're seeing heat waves in communities we've never seen before. Think about the heat dome of last summer, which we saw in the Pacific Northwest, where, you know, places that never had air conditioning because they didn't need them, you know, many people is, um, you know, we're experiencing over 100 degree days for a week, right? So we're, you know, extreme heat events. And then thinking about air quality and, um, you know, from wildfires, and the air degradation we've seen over huge swaths of the North American continent, right? Just, just from, the, from the wildfires and places that are states away have incredible um, 
degradation in air quality. We talked about water insecurity. We talked about extreme downpours, talked about vector-borne disease. Um, We have not talked about things like increasing aeroallergens or impacts of mental health on people. You know, think about the people that lived in Boulder right here, you know, 900 homes destroyed. So obviously a life-changing stressor for those people. But then, you know, the larger community and in anyone who reads the news is like, man, that is, uh, you know, could that happen here? What does that mean? You know, so there's a climate change dysphoria that is very prevalent now and that is having an impact on people. And, you know, we have to recognize that that's a thing um, as a mental health stressor. I think a lot of it is the fact that we look at our society and we see the data which tells us this is a worsening problem and we still have a paucity of meaningful policy on it. Even right now, climate legislation is being jammed up in Congress. And I think we can debate policy, but I think what the debate is getting much more clear on is that we have got to do something. And speaking of the wildfires, over this past summer, a friend and I went around America. And once we went through California into Oregon, that was during the peak of the wildfires. And I'm a victim of that where it doesn't affect me. I'm not too focused on it. I hear about these wildfires. I hear it's an issue. But once I saw it for like three hours, we were just driving through. You slowly see the smoke in the distance slowly cover more and more. Eventually, when you're in the heat of it, you look out at a house, maybe like a football field away, and it's already foggy. You came and see the whole thing. Once you get close enough, the sky starts to turn red. The craziest part was even at one point, you look straight at the sun. It's this little perfect circle that's red. Probably bad for my eyes regardless. But you could still see it and it won't burn your eyes no matter how long you look at it because there's just so much smog and fog. And um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is the thing about wildfires is that they're obviously total destruction where they're happening. But the amount of uh, air degradation that happens from them affects, you know, complete other states. Like probably Colorado, too, from Oregon, like that far. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the wildfires all all over the American West, you know, they'll settle in places like Salt Lake or Denver, big urban areas where it becomes, you can't go outside and run. If you're young and healthy, you'll, you'll get, you know, you'll start to get wheezy and coughing. And, you know, if you're wearing oxygen, you know, for uh, other diseases you may have, um, COPD or chronic lung disease, things like that, that's a risk factor as well. So, it degrades huge parts of the uh, American West when we see these wildfires in places like California and Oregon. Even like the few days I was in it, which was like interesting timing, somebody in um, my ma actually sent me a text saying in Connecticut, they even had an alert. So on the East Coast, there's a small alert saying, hey, be careful going outside because the fire got so bad. The quality is a little bit worse today. It's a little bit past what it should be. And last thing we want is that a little bit past to become the new norm. <laughs> right. Right, exactly. And while going through it, the final two things that blew my mind was one, tons of towns, people living their lives as if everything's normal, while like you're literally inhaling cigarette smoke, dangerous contaminants every second in your house, outside, every day throughout the remaining months or until the season's over. And two, then we stopped at a local burger shop and I thought it was snowing. Like I see like, 
I, I see this little like ash coming down. I'm like, huh, is it like a weird dust snow or what? Like, what is it? And then I see that it's like actual burnt ash, like landing on my burger, landing on my drink, like these little particles that people are probably eating too or drinking without realizing because it's literally like a snowstorm. That's what it looked like. That's quite a descriptive scene, right? I mean, that that is not normal. And when you're seeing <laughs> forests burn and the ashes falling on your lunch, it should, it should give everyone pause to say, huh. What is, what's going on here? What, you know, where right. is this from? Right. And, uh, you know, we, we know where it's from. You know, we have very, very good data that no, no one in science is debating this anymore. So now it's time for us to think about what does smart policy look like and how do we address this as a, as a nation? What does smart policy look like? Like, what would you do if you had the power? Well, first of all, I think we have to look at our energy mix and say, you know, how do we, and again, you have to remember, I'm a health, I'm a health expert. I'm not a policy expert, but, um, but I will endeavor to dive into this is to say, you know, we have to transition away from a carbon-based economy because that's where the root of it is at. We've seen grand moves like this before, right? We have done, we have seen the moonshot. We have seen the Marshall Plan. We have seen the New Deal. So um, people have talked about creating a grand structure of incentives to move our economic engines away from carbon-based energy to renewables and then advancing other technologies that are out there like fusion, you know, which is tantalizingly close to being able to be viable, you know, so giving that those industries a little bit of a boost to say, hey, if we can advance the commercialization of this by 10 years, wouldn't that be grand? So I think there's a lot of opportunities there for us to do that. We can also think about moving our educational and jobs creation towards green energy sectors and creating the pipeline for innovation and growth. I mean, China hasn't missed a beat on this. This is where they're looking to, to go and becoming leaders in the field. So I think you know, there's a geopolitical competition case to be made as well. This is in the best interests of the United States. It's a way for us to advance equity in our communities. We know climate change right now is, is a risk factor for vulnerable communities, you know, so lower socioeconomic groups of physiologic vulnerability by advancing policies directed at improving green space and transportation infrastructure and energy infrastructure, we have a, a mechanism to enhance social equity as well. So I think there's lots that can be done. And there's a lot of things that different groups have put forth as smart policy. And there's a lot about the Biden administration policies regarding um, the Climate Conservation Corps, for instance, or Civilian Climate Corps, sorry, that I think is really compelling. And a way to enhance the resiliency of our communities as well. So there's a lot that's out there. That's good. It's just like it can be out there. Hopefully this stuff gets passed because we know you said before, like COVID was one of the first times everybody came together for policy. Yeah, that's right. And something we talked about before the show was skeptics or people who are even for it at times. It seems like this constant, the world's ending tomorrow or the world's ending next year or you know it's too late the world's already it's already too late to change anything it's doom and gloom 
but you said you want to like see yeah. it in a new direction, a new light. I think there's a, no, there's a ton of stuff we can do and there's lots of room to do it. Right. You know, we know that the clock is ticking and our ability to, to change outcomes is getting narrower and narrower. But, you know, this past year we have seen, you know, public opinion has changed across the political spectrum. You know, I, I think there's a lot of conservative thought leaders who are saying, you know, this is, this is a big national security threat. This is a, a scientific threat. This is something that we need to worry about. So I think there's lots of momentum that we, we can build upon and coalitions that we can still build. So to me, it's just, again, it's creating uh, leaders that can articulate these threats and, and explain them to all of our constituents, friends, family, you know, voters, and um, be able to put forth policies that say, hey, this is going to change and put us back on a track where we're, we're less, less susceptible to these worst case scenarios, um, which we know will be very bad. Gotcha. Something you mentioned earlier was the mental health side of things. So how, how has this uh, climate change, like, yeah, it hurts our lungs or our system in all these ways, but how about us mentally? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a stress, right? All these things are stressful. When I, when you have ash falling on your hamburger, um, (laughs) I imagine that that, you know, a thoughtful person would be stressed out by that, by saying, what, what does this mean? You know, when you're driving through, you know, Idaho or Oregon and you can't see the sky and you, your eyes are watering and you're wheezy again, that's stressful. If you have to, if you live in Boulder and your house it gets burned down by unprecedented extreme weather at a time of year where you would never expect to have seen it, much less any other time of year, because you live in a relatively flat and otherwise safe community, that's stressful. And I think all of us can, you know, no matter where you live, there are examples of our ecosystems under stress from climate change. And everywhere in the US, you live by the ocean, Bill. So, you know, sea level rise will soon render all of our coastlines under stress from, from storm surge and then outright sea level rise, which will increase the flooding of our coastlines and uh, puts, our, puts our beaches at risk. And you know, huge swaths of, of the world population live on the coast. These are existential threats and certainly existential today for the people that live in the island nations of the Indian and Pacific oceans, where they live on, they live on reefs. You know, they're the predictions a hundred years from now is that their nations will be completely underwater. So again, there's just a list of things that are stressors to our mental health and um, you know, the, the stability of our planet, which I think is something that everyone is invested in when they think about, you know, what they want to leave their children in the world that their kids and grandkids are going to grow up in. Yeah. It just makes sense. Like, Having something as severe as this, where everybody's worried about their housing situation or their health or even caring about other people, it's just going to take a toll on you mentally. It just makes sense. And all right, something a little bit different to bring up that I just want to bring up because it just blew my mind when I read this was uh, I mentioned a little bit microplastics before the show. And that's a form of pollution. It may not be the same as gas emissions or it might not be the same as chemical runoff, but microplastics are like microscopic plastic particles that are ending up in our water and our food. We eat an average credit cards worth a week, the average person. So I consider that pollution. And what really blew my mind is, I don't know how the brain works. I'm no expert, but I saw an article where they found a mouse 
the mouse died, they cut it open, and in its brain, like actually attached to its brain, was a finger's covered worth of just microplastic. Like the person's finger was covered in microplastic that's just through the food that it ate or air breathed. It passed through the blood barrier to get into the mouse's brain. It's kind of dumb to think that's not happening to us as well. Yeah, you know, that, that's a different, little different than climate change, but yeah. for sure, it's it's environmental pollution. I'm convinced as a doctor that plastics in our body is not good for us. We know there's big, big links with endocrine disruption in microplastics. It's concerning, right? And it's, it's, again, reflective of the way that we interact with our environment. And so very concerning. And if nothing else, a wake-up call perhaps to say, hey, let's make sure we're paying attention to this. And... Our, our communities are acting in a way that's that our planet's going to be, you know, livable for our kids and grandkids. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Jay Lamery, thanks so much for coming out to the show. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Is there any final message that you want to tell the audience? I'll just say thanks for listening. You know, that's um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of data out there. It can be overwhelming at times. Uh, I would say that this is a priority for everybody, and it should be something that we hold our policymakers accountable for. And it's important for us to understand that this is a risk, but there's a lot we can do to change it. There's a lot of hopeful innovations out there. And um, I would just say that, uh, you know, in terms of risks to our health and well-being, to me, this is, this is at the top. And my biggest hope is that we begin to hold our uh, policymakers more accountable so this becomes a priority for them and we can enact, uh, again, smart changes to the way we do business. And that was Dr. Jay Limery. To see more information about him, be sure to click the links in the description. And for those tuning in through the radio, be sure to check out the podcast. Go to podcasttheway.com. I highly recommend it. Give a five-star rating, like, review, share the show. Every little bit helps, makes a world of a difference. Thank you. I appreciate it. You can go podcasttheway.com. This is FM 91.7 WHOS Doors at the top of the hour and 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. As always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Podcast